This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Our author this evening is a great friend of politics and prose and will, of course, be familiar to anyone who follows the White House Press Corps. April Ryan has been on the White House beat for more than two decades. And like many veteran journalists, she has a natural aversion, normally, to becoming the story herself. And yet, and yet to her distress, that's exactly what's happened under the Trump administration. Remember April facing off with the president about whether he's a racist or, or being asked by him whether she could set up a meeting with the Congressional Black Caucus, suggesting they were friends of hers? <laughs> or remember when Sean Spicer accused April of having an agenda after she asked about Trump's ties with Russia and then berated her for shaking her head? And how about April's clashes with Amorosa Manigault Newman? <laughs> Whom, whom, whom April had considered, whom April had considered a friend, only to discover Amorosa was scheming against her. In her new book, Under Fire, April recounts the challenges she's endured trying to do her job covering the White House, the combative exchanges to her questions, the attempts to discredit her, the condescending and demeaning comments by administration staff members. April has served as White House correspondent for American Urban Radio Network for 21 years, reporting on four presidents in that time. A year ago, the National Association of Black Journalists named April the Journalist of the Year. But she also... She also took on additional duties last year, signing with CNN as a political analyst. And she's written two previous books, The Presidency in Black and White, and At Mama's Knee, Mothers and Race in Black and White. Her new work offers a reporter's inside view of some of the major news events uh, of the past 18 months or so, but it's also a very personal, passionate, and pained account of what it's been like as one of the few black reporters on one of the most prestigious assignments in Washington, being subjected to insults, and yes, even death threats, and persevering through it all. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming April Ryan. Good evening. You can do better than that. Good evening. All right, I love this politics and prose crowd. I mean, it's one of the most amazing moments in my life to be able to come to Politics and Prose. This is one of the best bookstores in the nation. And I'm just gonna say it. I've been around the world with books. And I thank Brad and Lisa so much for having me back. Well, woo, for a time such as this. <laughs> you know, um, Brad, as you were talking, it's tough listening to what you've been through publicly. Imagine going through what you go through in your home with only maybe just you knowing and maybe, you know, your kids or your husband. But think about the whole world knowing you're you're a meme. Your kids call you from school. Mommy, are you OK? I'm like, I'm great. 
after, you know, after the president of the United States, you know, tells you that basically you're in with the DNC or D with the Democratic Party and the CBC. After Sean Spicer tells a woman who's older than he is and who's been in the White House longer than he is, stop shaking your head. After Sarah Huckabee Sanders says and does what she does, it's tough. It's tough writing about what's happened over the last two years. And I'm going to tell you, it's tough reading it. There, it's tough writing, but, but it's tough reading because there are a lot of books out here right now that are talking about it. They've got videotape, they got audio tape. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> but it is a crazy time we live in. And I mean, I get teary out, and I don't mean to. This is my first book event, and, I, and it's still raw to me because I'm still going through. And I see some of my friends that have been, okay, before we go any further, all of my friends who are here, I'm seeing them in the crowd, and they look like they want to cry too. All of my friends who have been on the beat with me are on the beat with me. Stand up, raise your hand. Some great reporters who are here. Come on, Patty, Catherine, where's Brittany? Okay. Some of my colleagues on the White House beat who have been there or who are currently there, thank you for coming. It's kind of tough. And, and, and the ones back there, uh, Patty, Catherine, and Tina, knew me back 20 years ago when I started. It wasn't like this then. It wasn't like this. The press gets a bad name. Now, don't get me wrong, there are people in the press who are on the right, there are people who are on the left, and then you have some who are in between that I consider I'm a part of, that group that, that remembers Walter Cronkite, that's the way it was. I wanna give you fact give you a little history about what this was, what it is and what it looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, and then where we go from here. But now when you do that, you're considered the enemy of the people. What does that look like? How does that feel? It makes me tear up because I'm that kid from Baltimore who still believes in what our founding fathers said. They never thought there'd be an April Ryan in the press room. <laughs> they never thought there'd be a Twitter or social media <laughs> or the Facebook <laughs> or the Snapchat or the Gram. And they never thought there'd be a Barack Obama, a Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or a Donald J. Trump. But I thank God for their foresight. And I mean, these founding fathers were people who probably had slaves. Some of them did have slaves. But there but for the grace of God, I'm in that room today asking questions. When you ask a question in that room, sometimes it shifts the atmosphere. It used to shift the atmosphere for the better. Sometimes when you ask questions, it puts on the table issues that the principals, the president, or those who are in his ear did not think about before. Sometimes it puts on the table issues where they say, okay, we have to shift and change policy. I'm gonna give you a couple for instances, a couple of questions that I asked before, before I get into them. I'm gonna read a couple of excerpts from the book. How many of you already have the book? Amen, amen, amen. You're gonna all buy the book. We're gonna send this to a New York Times bestseller. Yes, I'm gonna sign it. We're gonna, we're gonna post it on Twitter and the Snapchat and the Gram and all that stuff. So we're going to make this thing go. We're going to say, Bob, would we like you? But here we come, too. So, 
I have much, much respect for Bob Woodward. But here's <laughs> a couple of stories that I covered years ago, and you can go back in the archives and find this out, and it's the truth. There was a story about black farmers. How many of you remember the black farmer story? They were discriminated against. They were discriminated against by the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. For 17 years, Bill Clinton said, okay, all right, you were discriminated against, we're gonna make sure you get your money. They didn't get their money for 17, over 17 years. But there was a reporter, a couple other people who kept asking questions, but I was the one in the White House. Mr. President, what happened to the black farmer's money? Kept asking. It kept being moved and pushed to the next president. Every president tried. It finally happened under Barack Obama. But when questions continue to come, things sometimes change. Okay, let me give you another for instance. And I'm not in the pocket of any administration. I'm an equal opportunity offender, I guess. <laughs> the NAACP has gotten angry with me. True story. The Congressional Black Caucus, who I'm friends with, has been mad with me before. <laughs> and I don't know all the members. <laughs> I don't know all the members, but they've been mad at me. I've had Bill Clinton mad with me because I used to always ask, when will there be an apology for slavery? I asked George W. Bush that. I mean, the Bush uh, administration was mad at me. The Obama administration was mad at me. Now this administration is mad at me. I think about when I was there during the Clinton years, sometimes people thought I was a Republican. During the Bush years, people thought I was a Democrat. During the Obama years, they thought I was Democrat, Republican. I, they couldn't figure it out. Now here, they think I'm a Democrat. I must be doing my job right. But I think about how we used to ask questions, and, and I think about the time with the Obama administration. Remember when the Salahis came into the White House? <laughs> Remember when the Salahis, are they still in this area? What is it, Housewives of D.C.? Yeah, the, no, no, the Potomac is a new one now. That's, yeah. One of my college classmates is on that show. Sharice. Um, um, <laughs> no, Housewives of D.C. And they wanted to make themselves prominent on that show by going to the state dinner with the Indian leader. I asked the questions. I was getting information from those in the community of the White House, those who were close to the administration, those who were close to the president, and those who were outside who understood the process. And I had been there for a number of years at that point to understand how you go into the White House. Well, Robert Gibbs didn't like it, so he berated me publicly. But guess what? They changed back to the old policy because we ask questions about it. But at that time, there was retaliation. I mean, throughout, throughout the, the life of a reporter at a White House or at any political outlet, there is retaliation. There is retaliation. It is not pie in the sky. There is retaliation. But when you go to this level, we're the enemy of the people. We're fake. It puts a target on our heads. I write about it in this book, April Ryan Under Fire, reporting from the front lines of the Trump White House. I'm going to take you back to where it started. You want to know where it started? 
It started in Baltimore, okay. <laughs> I started in Baltimore, but the story didn't start in Baltimore. It actually started back during the campaign. It started during the campaign when I thought I had a friend. And I'm not going to linger long on that story. But that person is now gone, but the residue lingers. And that person is taped and videotaped and says they're part of the resistance now, but lies. But that friend who I'd known for years, since the Clinton years, who worked in Al Gore's office, who is the person who would call me to say, it's time to do an interview with the vice president. I said, oh, sure. If anytime you get an interview, a chance to interview the principal, the president or the vice president, you're gonna jump at the opportunity because the first thing for a reporter is access to a president. You wanna know what they're thinking, what it's all about, any issue. So we became friends and after the White House, you know, we lost touch and they were on a show called The Apprentice. See each other around, around the country, got closer and closer and closer and closer to the point where I met their family, they met my family, we traveled together, we had fun together. But I always wondered, you know, well, is that the person I'm with? Because I don't see that person I see on TV. Everyone warned me. But I'm the type of person I'd take you for what you give to me. So let's fast forward to a few summers ago. We were close, we were friends. And then all of a sudden there was this thing called WikiLeaks that came up. And I'm gonna say it this way. I'm gonna, this is my take on history from a strange perch. A perch that I've been sitting in for 21 years, smack dab in the middle of that briefing room on the third row. She can't miss me when I raise my hand. <laughs> she doesn't miss me because she stares at me sometimes and calls somebody else. She'd be looking straight at me right there. So anyway, um, our friendship deteriorated when WikiLeaks came out. I believe any reporter worth their salt, their pen and pad, or part of WikiLeaks. And I say that because in this town, it's about who you know and what you know. I had access to John Podesta. I had access to people in other campaigns. But at that time, I was wondering, why was it such a a hard feat at that time for Hillary Clinton and the black community to find common ground while Bernie Sanders was out there and others were out there. So I emailed John Podesta and that email went around to the Clinton campaign. That's not unheard of. What WikiLeaks won't tell you is, is that I also reached out to Omarosa to interview Donald Trump. I called his assistant to interview Donald Trump. I emailed and called people who were close to Ben Carson. I emailed and called people who were close to Bernie Sanders. I emailed and called people who were close to Ted Cruz. So what you're getting is one side of the story is that, oh, she was on Wiki, she was in WikiLeaks because of the Clinton emails, but you're not getting all of the story. So that person allegedly got upset. When they got upset, and this is all in the book, when they got upset, they started to lie on me, a career ending lie. A lie saying that 
I was taking money from Hillary Clinton. That's not what WikiLeaks said. Not at all. So that happened during the summer. And then come November, I couldn't believe it. I was asked again, are you going to, no, August I was asked the question and they asked me again, would you be in my wedding? I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and this was at the time that they were trying to secure the nomination. It was just before the nomination, then they got the nomination. Well, no, they got the, uh, they, the president-elect. They won the presidency. So I said, no. I said, I can't. And it went downhill after that to the point where Sean Spicer was told by this person to stop calling on me in the briefing room. Yes. If I don't ask some of those questions in the briefing room, they will not be asked. Those questions will not be asked. There's a certain segment of society that won't hear about issues pertaining to them if I am shut down. So it was strategic by this person to ruin me. So I'm going to start with this. Have you ever had the type of friend that you just couldn't read? Hmm. One minute you think you have a good relationship and then she will say or do something that totally changes your opinion. That's what it was like. I was, I always felt like there was an agenda, some underlying reason for everything she said or did as if it was yet another move in her reality show strategy to life. Then with the bridesmaid invitation, I couldn't tell if she was sincere, if she was trying to set me up, or if she just wanted to use my attendance to show that she had a friend in the press. I had no idea what she was telling Trump or others she worked with. So I thought my best approach was to just leave it alone and see how our relationship would progress. Then came WikiLeaks. Apparently, via the Russians, WikiLeaks had gotten hold of the emails of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. It was understandable that mixed in with the more controversial emails would be communications with, the, with and about journalists. And as I suspected, there were emails from me in there. I had asked the campaign for a meeting between Hillary and black journalists, trying to figure out why the black base was not as energized as the other Democrats thought they should be. At the same time, I was asking the Trump campaign through Omarosa and calls to Trump Tower and Trump secretary for the same, a meeting and interview with candidate Trump. I even publicly went on Twitter asking the candidate himself for interviews. No response. In any event, my emails to the Trump campaign were not reflected in the trove of Podesta emails and in the news accounts. News stories came out about my name being mentioned in those emails. According to mutual friends, Omarosa was upset that I was in any of those emails. And this is where Omarosa thought she had a clear chance to pounce. She devised a scenario that went like this. Omarosa began saying that I was taking money from the Hillary Clinton campaign. She then reported this lie to a mutual friend who later told me that she that he had told her that she was reading the news stories wrong and that she was misinterpreting the emails. Omarosa is a smart person and she understood what the news articles were saying, but she wanted to twist the stories to make me appear guilty of being an unethical journalist. That's where it all started. So fast forwarding, you remember February, March, the first press conference, the first solo press conference. Just a week and a half prior to that, there were rumors of an altercation between the Oval Office and the press office. It's true. I'm trying to save my name. And she was screaming for the president to come out the door to back her up in a fight. Yeah, 
Wow. You can't imagine, you can't make this stuff up. You cannot. You cannot make this stuff up. And I'm not going to linger long on this. But the only reason why I tell you is because a week and a half after that, the President of the United States asked me if the CBC were my friends. Many people thought it was racial. And if you watched me on TV, I never said it was racial because all of this was behind it. I thought it was more sinister, an attempt to smear me. This was an attempt of someone who wanted to prove her loyalty, who used to be a Democrat, a Clinton-Clinton-loving, Obama-loving Democrat, who's now turned Trump lover, to prove to them that she was in their camp and she was in lockstep with them. What better way to do it by cutting off the head of a friend and putting it on a platter and serving it to them? So that's enough about her. <laughs> I had to address it. But the residue lingered. Even after she left, it lingered. She was telling Sean Spicer not to call on me. It lingered. The stories that I covered, I was considered rogue for asking questions about health care. Elijah Cummings, Elijah Cummings, Congressman Elijah Cummings, talked to President Trump the day of inauguration about matters of health care, but I'm rogue by asking for asking about that. I'm rogue for asking about taking a knee. Mr. President, do you understand what really is at the foundation of taking a knee? And in the book I even talk about, there were moments I wanted to take a knee in the press room. <laughs> no, it's the truth. Especially when she wanted to bake me a pie that I did not eat. <laughs> and I... <laughs> <laughs> I did not eat that pie. <laughs> we tried to do a reset. It's in the book. What is it, Brad? Two doors down. Yeah, we did. We had dinner. And there's a picture of it. Not a tape of it. Not a video of it. But there's a picture of it on the gram. It bucks fishing and camping. Because she wanted to figure out what went wrong with us. Sarah Huckabee Sanders. How do you write? Now, all of this is behind me. and You want to find out what, what went wrong with us? Sean's telling me, stop shaking my head. One minute he wants to call on me, next minute he doesn't. In a fight outside of his office, between his office and the Oval Office with someone in the administration, people are trying to discredit me. And then your boss is saying things about me to you. Where did we go wrong? Is something wrong with me? I'm like, that's where we were. It's too much behind us. An attempt to discredit one of the deans of the White House press corps. This is about the free press. If they do it to me, if they do it to me. I talk about Charlottesville in the book. The weekend of Charlottesville, there's just a continuance of things that happened. Charlottesville, the weekend I received the um, Journalist of the Year Award, 2017. Charlottesville happened. That's also the weekend that the campaign put out an ad saying there were reporters who were trying to thwart the president's agenda. I was the only 
White House correspondent in that ad. I was the only White House correspondent in that ad, and that's the weekend of Charlottesville. That's the weekend the target was placed on my head. A reporter friend of mine who I admire and have loved for 20 years, Alexis Simmendinger, who works for The Hill, she kept calling me. It, it, was the, it was the morning right after I received my award. I was on a high. Who wouldn't be on a high? You're recognized as the journalist of the year from an, organiz- an esteemed organization. It's like, wow. That next morning, the next day, I'm in the fetal position in New Orleans because I have a target placed on my head saying I'm trying to do something against the president of the United States. What have I done? Nothing. Nothing but ask questions. The First Amendment, freedom of the press. <laughs> on September 22nd, 2017, at the Black Women's Agenda Luncheon at the Marriott Marquis Hotel, during the Congressional Black Caucus Legislative Week, I know they're my friends, <laughs> I received the Education Award. I was being honored along with Senator Kamala Harris at the table. Senator Harris was seated on my right. She turned to me, leaned over a person between us and said with bewilderment and a sisterly smile of support, you keep going back. Kamala Harris, did you see her today? Yeah, that one. (laughs) Without thinking, I said, so do you. I also gave her this truth. I keep going back because I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. When is asking a question wrong? I am allegedly on the blacklist at the White House. Blacklist. (laughs) I'm on the blacklist. I mean, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm not worried about a blacklist. I'm black and there's always a list, so I'm all right. I'm on the blacklist apparently because they're still stinging from that question that I asked about, Mr. President, are you a racist? That question still bothers me to this day. Not for the reasons you may think, but for any reporter to have to ask a sitting United States president that. For any reporter to have to ask a sitting United States president, are you a racist is painful. And it had to be me on that day. I'm that kid from Baltimore whose parents had King and Kennedy on their wall growing up. And Lord knows if my mother and father were alive today, it'd be Barack Obama and Michelle Obama <laughs> as well. And they'd be like, oh, look. And they'd get a bobblehead to get everything that they could get, you know. And I'd be like, oh, God. And no one knows my politics. But I grew up in that kind of household. I grew up in a household where we had one of those component sets, or yeah, that's what it's called, a stereo set. Remember those stereo sets back in the 60s and 70s? It looked like a casket. Remember that? (laughs) And you put the 45s and, you know, the thing in the middle. I know, and for those of you who are too young, Google it. (laughs) So that was when it was fun, you know? You had, you waited to put the little arm on and the the, the vinyl would fall down and you're like, oh, and you hear little scratches and stuff. And you put, and if it was a scratch, you put a little nickel on the, on, you know, so we're going back. But anyway, I digress. But I was in that family that had that LP of the I Have a Dream speech. And I'm that quirky kid. 
I used to go home, walk home. I was a latchkey kid too. I used to walk home from school and I would listen to Dr. King. No one in my house. I would just play Dr. King. That's who I am. So that day, that day that I asked the president of the United States that I was conflicted, I was in pain. I really, up until the moment I asked the question, was trying to figure out if I was going to. And the reason why, again, for me or any reporter to have to ask a sitting United States president, are you a racist is a bad day. And on that day, if it weren't for Dr. King, I wouldn't be in that White House. If it weren't for many of you or, or those who, who marched, who bled, who died and just maybe sat in or, or just quietly did their work, I wouldn't be there. President Trump was trying to expand, talking about expanding the, the National Park of the King Center. That was the only time I had proximity to the president of the United States of America. Now, just before that time, we were hearing the words asshole, right? Just before that, we're trying to figure out what did he mean about Charlottesville? Also, we were trying to figure out about Haiti and, and Nigeria and the huts. We were dealing, we were still reeling from the Niger issue with Frederica Wilson and LaDavid Johnson. We're still trying to figure out what the blacks have to lose, what the African-Americans have to lose. So I started hearing this undercurrent from not just black leaders, but from leaders, black, white, Jew, Gentile, Protestant, Catholic. I was hearing this quiet rumble. He's racist, he's racist. And some were going in the news saying it. He had just said, or he said it and he, he denied it, but those who were credible in that room said he said it. So I said, okay, Mr. President, are you a racist? I asked three times, he didn't answer. That news dominated the weekend, and he finally said he wasn't. But as a man thinketh, so is he. I actually cried walking out of the White House that day, fell into the arms of Dan Tutman, a cameraman I knew from Baltimore, because that was a crazy moment for me. This has not been an easy time to be a reporter. Many of us don't just go up there and raise our hand and say, oh, we think about the consequences, the cause, the effect. We think about who it benefits and who it could hurt. There's a lot that goes into asking questions. Freedom of the press. It's not just we just sit up there, hey, Mr. President, what's up? There's thought behind it. There's research behind it. If they do it to me, they'll do it to somebody else. There are a lot of stories in here about the stories that I cover like healthcare, and I wanna, I wanna give you this really fast, and then I'm gonna go into questions, and I can't cover everything in half an hour, but I'm gonna, I wanna let you ask questions, but it's about healthcare, chapter two. January 20th, 2017 was the day Barack Obama left office, and the new president assumed the post at 12.01 p.m. 12.01, 12.01. It was a day people worked to feel one another out to see where we stood, some bast in the light of the new day, the post-Obama era, the Trump era. What was going to happen first? Another kind of change had come to Washington. Some politicians, regardless of party, wanted to work 
with this neophyte crew on some very pressing issues affecting America. During the inauguration luncheon on Capitol Hill, President Trump and veteran Congressman Elijah Cummings, a Maryland Democrat, met up and agreed they should talk. For Congressman Cummings, things happened in a very interesting way. This wasn't his first rodeo involving reaching across the aisle to make things happen, or at least trying to make things happen. The thing he wanted to address was the high cost of prescription drugs. At the luncheon, the new president seemed very concerned about this issue and wholeheartedly agreed they should talk. However, time passed and there was no follow-up, but the issue weighed on Congressman Cummings' heart. He thought he had his window of opportunity to begin discussing in earnest, but nothing was happening. Radio silence on any connections. I was curious about those early days and how the new occupant of the Oval Office was settling in. I wanted to know what his schedule was like. Was he overwhelmed? Was he stressed out? I can only imagine what it would be like for this man to assume such a lofty position following such an accomplishment in his life. In my mind, he was probably doing his best to catch up on everything so that his staff and the American public would have confidence that he could handle the job. Do you have confidence? Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I just asked the question. However, after I talked to a staffer who was there during those early days, things played out much differently than I could have ever imagined. At that time, early in the administration, the president was using his executive time before, during, and after work. Start time for President Trump was generally 11.30 a.m. This was unheard of in the Bush and Obama administrations or any other that I'm aware of. I, ch this is, I checked in the daily routines as well, and the latest they arrived at work was 8.30 a.m. It was not unusual for them to even begin the day at 7.30 or earlier. Those early meetings often allowed them to hold senior staff meetings and consultations with other world leaders who are in different time zones. It was apparent from the beginning that this president was going to follow a completely different routine, one particularly focused on TV news. While President Trump resides in the shop above the store, he always seems to be watching television, especially at the time when MSNBC's Morning Joe news talk show airs. Hmm. One morning, the president saw Elijah Cummings on the air with Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. Congressman Cummings purposely made mention of the Inauguration Day meeting. In true Trump fashion, the chief executive responded for a change, not on Twitter. The president unexpectedly called Cummings without any advance notice or warning. I've known the congressman for a while, and he normally isn't shockable, but when one of his staffers reached him and said the president was on the phone, this time he was shocked. It is protocol to arrange the calls because both are busy men and may not be able to talk at the same time. With notice, both can prepare for the call and its agenda. Apparently, the new president was going to take a different approach and the congressman adjusted. The two men finally discussed the issue of the high price of prescription drugs. They agreed to have a meeting because both men felt the issue was very important. Well, well, what followed was a mess. And this may have been why protocol was not followed to arrange for a proper telephone meeting. The novice Trump staff just couldn't figure out how to pull the scheduling together. Since the meeting didn't happen right away, instead of investigating the cause, Trump went out at his first press conference, his solo press conference, and accused Congressman Cummings of not wanting to meet with him. And you have to read the rest of the story. But there is good news on health care. But in the midst of all of this, being a target, 
and under fire, which I am. I have hope. I have hope. And the reason why I have hope is because we, the people, are still forming a more perfect union. We, the people, are still forming a more perfect union. In the midst of the attacks, in the midst of the death threats, I have done nothing wrong. And in the midst of all of this, like Senator Kamala Harris said, you still keep going back. I'm not going to stop going back. I'm going to continue to raise my hand. She may not call on me, but that's okay because she's getting ready to leave anyway. <laughs> she's getting ready to leave. She's, yeah. She's trying to make an elegant exit. I've been there 21 years. Never faced anything like this. Tomorrow I will be 51 years old. Thank you. I'm the daughter of two great people who told me I can be and do anything as long as I work hard. I never would have imagined I'd be in the White House. But I tell you what, I cannot leave and I will not leave. As long as there's breath in me and as long as we still stand on what those great founding fathers who had slaves said. <laughs> the First Amendment, freedom of the press. With that, thank you and I wanna take questions. And I want you to use these two mics on the side um, for questions. And I know there's some questions. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your courage. Thank you. And my question is, what can the average American do to ensure freedom of the press? You know what? I'm so glad you asked that. It is a great question. And it's a simple question. It's a great question. I said, we the people sitting in that crazy perch for 21 years, I have watched the people who get the attention of presidents. The people, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Don't believe that it doesn't. If you come together, if you organize, what does organize look like? Find like-minded people come together and work on an agenda. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what I see. When people come together, they can strike a powerful blow. I love social media, but social media is a crutch for people now. They hide behind their emojis and they do like, mm, I'm cute. Mm, mm. <laughs> it's not about that. They come together on social media. What you can use social media for is telling people, this is where we're going to organize. Come out. There is still something to be said about that shoe leather, you know, hitting the streets. And I think about the common day, the, 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 the current day scenarios and examples. Parkland. Everything, we have been dealing with this gun issue for a long time. And I'm not talking politics or policy. I'm just talking about how they got the attention of this White House and the NRA. Now, that's huge. They came out forcefully. I mean, we've seen our babies die in Newtown. We've seen, we've seen so much. And then I think about, I think about when they, the, 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 the separation of the babies from their parents. People rose up. Voices were heard. If you lay down, you're going to stay down. And I, I just watch the people who make a noise and consistently do this. The most successful movement in this nation was the civil rights movement. The most successful movement. You, and, 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 you know, people have taken that blueprint from, from the LGBT community, LGBTQ, and I, I, I don't, I, I love my LGBTQ community. I just, they're adding extra letters and I got to get, I got to get hit with it. Because, <laughs> and I want to be inclusive, but I, forgive me if I don't add the extra letters. Um, the women's movement, the immigration movement, 
and the communities that have the highest numbers of negatives still in every category, I don't see the marching. Yes, it takes the legal, it takes people to be in the courts, but it also takes feet in the street. So I still believe in that. And I mean, I'm telling you, we as reporters, we cover those, Tina, am I telling the truth? We cover those who make the loudest noise. If you're not making those, we're like, oh, no. If you make the noise, trust me. And he's on Twitter. He sees. He sees. He sees. And he'll tweet about it every now and again. But that's, I think we still have to believe. We have forgotten. I think I want, I, I have something in my spirit. I want my next book to be something about that. We the people, because I think we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten that we have power. It is not about a mayor. It's not about a congressman. It's not about a president of the United States. It's about the people that elected them. They are to serve. And sometimes we forget you're paying their salary. I think people are forgetting that we have the power. And I just... Take back your power. That's all I got to say. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So I just wanted to say that I used to take Sarah McLennan to the uh, to the oh, White yeah. House during the Clinton years, and she was like an '80s, '90s, and you know, getting around in her wheelchair. So if you're we remember, 50, they, they remember. <laughs> if you're 50, you're just getting started. Okay, you're just a baby. Okay. Thank you. I know I look like I'm 17. Thank Hang you. in there. Don't don't stop. Okay. I, I'm going to say this to you. I remember Sarah and Helen. I said, if I go that long, pull me out of there. Because I, I just, <laughs> I want I want to leave and just do a graceful leaving and just say, okay, it's been nice. I want somebody to have a cake and say, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I, we remember. Another 21 years. We'll see. Thank you, though. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Hi. My question to you is, with the media now under attack from every direction, have you ever had one of those days when you're just like, that's it, I'm done? Like, I really can't do this anymore because hearing you speak, you have such a resiliency and most most people would be like you know what I can't I mean what drives you every day to get up in the morning that's a great question thank you I don't think I have resilience, um, but thank you so much. Um, my mother, when I grew up, my mother, my late mother, I just lost my father in August, August 8th. Um, I lost my mother 11 years ago, and I have my mother's heart. Um, and my mother said, I don't know where you get it from, you're a fighter. But my father, oh my gosh, he would tell you, if you were wrong, he, he that's wrong. My father was this guy who believed in right and wrong. And I stand on their shoulders. I come from a blue collar slash white collar family who really worked hard to make sure my brother and I traveled the right path. Um, The day that I wanted to quit was the day Sean said, stop shaking your head. Now, mind you, it was a lot of stuff coming. It was a lot of stuff before that. 
you know, the fight between the Oval Office and the press uh, press secretary's office being told that I'm taking money from Hillary Clinton. That's kind of stuff that's career ending. And then just a whole bunch of other stuff. And I mind you, the only time I see Sarah now is when we're in the briefing room because I will not go up there anymore. The tension is so thick. But that day I was like, okay, I said, I'm done. I called people and you have to read about who I called and called me to check in on me that day. But I mean, I had family members who were like, I've never heard you like this before. I said, I'm quitting. I said, you cannot. I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was trying to figure out, okay, how are you going to make a living now? Now, this is all I know how to do. I studied in college for this. And I said, this is it. I said, what am I going to do? I'm driving home. And then a friend of mine by the name of Ryan Williams called me. And I was like, and it was, it was, I couldn't even do work that day. I mean, it was like, I had to, to do the story on the altercation I had with Sean. I had to write other stories. And it was like the longest day. I didn't leave the White House, I don't think, until eight o'clock. And my day typically is over four or five. Well, at the White House. And then I took that long drive home, just contemplating, pondering. And a friend of mine called me and said, April, Hillary, you know, have you heard Hillary? I'm like, why are you asking me about Hillary Clinton while I'm going through this mess right now? I'm like, oh, no. He said, I got to send it to you. I was like, oh, okay. And I saw Hillary Clinton talk about me and Maxine Waters. And I raised my hand and said, thank you, Jesus. And I just started crying because she talked about my integrity. And it makes me want to cry right now because you guys, I'm telling you, what did I tell you earlier? It's one thing to go through this stuff in private, in your own home with your husband that you sometimes don't like or your wife, you know. It's okay because everybody doesn't know. Maybe your little close friends. But when the world sees it, it's tough because that's not, my friends don't know me as that. My children don't know me as that. There's collateral damage because that day that Sean Spicer did that and the day that the president talked about get your friends together and have a meeting, my daughter is at her school. She and now, I love social media, but now there is a problem because I can't reach my child before social media reach, reaches my child. My daughter is text messaging me because she saw it. Mommy, are you okay? I'm great. And I'm like trying to hold it in because if I am upset, she'll be upset. I had to let her know I am okay, so therefore you be okay. She said, okay, mommy. And so that night I get home. And I go in my office, my home office, and I saw the video. And I am I saw it on the phone, but I watched it over and over again. So I called my children down. And I showed them what Sean did. They're like, Mommy, I don't want to see it. I just I just can't. I said, wait, wait. Because your children your children don't want to see that they, re they respect you and love you. They don't want to see anything negative happen to you. But then when um, Hillary Clinton, yes, go Hillary, run Hillary. I was like, okay, y'all, just calm down. Hillary Clinton is is not running, but I said, my my children are Hillaryites, and they were like, they think that I'm a, I, 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 they think I'm a Republican, and I voted for Trump because I want an interview. I'm like, if that's what you think, keep on thinking it. I said, so my kids don't even know my my political persuasion. But I say all this to say, I stand on the shoulders of my parents. I stand on the shoulders of Dr. King. I stand on the shoulders of every one of you here. I stand on the shoulders of, of Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman. I stand on the shoulders of Gloria Steinem. I stand on the shoulders of so many people. And if I give up, I let them down. I cannot and I will not. This is bigger than just me. It's about freedom of the press because if they do it to me, they feel they've won. And they're not going to get a victory as far as I'm concerned off of me.
in backing down. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Would you speak to the dynamics within the press room when in the discussions that take place when events like uh, what you described, but also when that poor reporter from the uh, CNN, when CNN was banned after she shouted a question, when Jim Acosta basically Caitlin. ignored. So what is that? What kind of discussions occur among the people in the press pool? What kind of discussions happen among the people in the press pool when they ban Caitlin and, and, and tell Jim to get out? And even when they tell me stuff, I mean, I think they, they know that I think the, pre, the the people in the um, the Correspondent Association kind of know I can handle myself or they feel I can handle myself and they, they stand up. But when it comes to banning now, because they knew, but they didn't know for sure that there was a list. And now they know they have come out and spoken forcefully about it. Um, but there's only so much that we can do. This president has threatened to kick us out. He's threatened to ban us. He's talked about us. He's chastised us. I mean, when you go to rally, I mean, I can tell, I, and it's sad, I can tell when I go to an airport or walk somewhere who supports the president versus who doesn't, just how they approach me. And I'm like, what have I done to you? And it's now reverberating, and we're all kind of coming together about how we are feeling it. It's still about access. We're still in the midst of being threatened, we still have a job to do and we're committed to do that job. And it's it's a it's a tough, it's a delicate walk, it's a delicate balance, and it's 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 tough. But we are trying to to fight in each in every way we can. And we we're really asking him to stop, asking the president to stop this. Um by pointing out Caitlin, I'm gonna say this. Caitlin had every right to ask, when you are in front of a president of the United States, you have one chance to ask a question, and she had every right to ask. Anytime, if you look at other videos, when people go into the Oval Office or those small rooms, they ask questions. He just so happened not to like the question at that time. He was, he's in crisis right now, and he's acting out in crisis mode. He is in crisis the nation is in in crisis right now. Political crisis is in a national security. And people don't realize this. There is a crisis and this president is feeling the stress of it. But in the way he lashes out is to come after us. And, and, and that kind of emboldens his base and makes him feel like he's um, he's doing the right thing because his base, his base still believes in him. Highly. But the rest of the nation is seeing it like, wow, what's going on? This is dangerous. It's a dangerous game, but we are still committed. We are, we're coming together and, 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 and trying to work. There, there are other organizations that believe in freedom of the press and, and trying to protection of the press that, that, are, that are working with us. But we are still working to do our job. And um, we're going to continue to do our job. But it's not easy. We are, we are, it's not easy. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> But thank you. I hope I hope I answered your question. Yes, sir. Good evening, hey. Miss Ryan. Hi. Um, at the press conferences with uh, Sanders and the president, who determines which media outlets have reporters at those conferences? And is there ever a place made for some of the smaller media outlets, especially the black media outlets? OK, um, I don't know about how I don't. 
I don't know how many black media outlets come there anymore because I think they see what they're doing to me and they're like, I'm not going over there. <laughs> so I'm serious. I don't see many of us. Um, but they put the people, and I'm just going to say it, they put the people that they like in some of those prime seats. Some, they'll have room for the first row. The second and third kind of like off on their own. But they'll put the second and third kind of be peppered with the people who normally sit in the back of the room, in the briefing room. So it's 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 skewed heavily to those who they feel are um, friends, media friends. I hope I answered your question. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Hi. I just have to start off with saying thank you for speaking your truth and continuing to speak your truth in thank the you. face of everything. You are truly a role model in so many ways. I'm just curious, as we look at the way everything is shifting as far as this sort of celebrity culture and I know the introduction, it was mentioned about how you had tried not to be the story, but now so many journalists are becoming the story. Do you see a way back from that so that, no. and that's what I was afraid no, of? No, things have forever changed. Mm -hmm. Things have forever changed. Um, the next president of the United States, whoever that will be, is looking at this. And the envelope has been pushed to the nth degree. Um, things have forever changed. I mean, I remember when I was covering the Clinton years, we used to remember guys, we used to be able to scream out. We would scream, Mr. President. And we, you know, George W. Bush came in. I don't want that. And we weren't. They started picking us. And then Barack Obama didn't like it. He didn't like it. They don't like the press, but they learned to deal with it. Just like John McCain. Thank God for John McCain's words. When you oppress the press and suppress the press, there begins a dictatorship. Now this president is like, you will not, you know, get out. He has moved the ball to a whole, he's moved it forward in a, in a wrong direction and the worst direction. Um, I don't, we are forever changed by this. And I don't think it's like, it's like the genie has been let out of the bottle and the bottle has been broken. You, you have to figure out what to do with that genie now. You got to find the kryptonite for it. Um, I know the genie, Superman was kryptonite, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, things are forever changed. I hope I answered your question. Hi, April Ryan. Um, so my question- She's my whole government name. April, <laughs> hi, April Ryan. <laughs> Hello. Hello. So I'm a young communications professional. Um, I just wanted to ask you in general, like what words of, of advice would you have for someone that's, you know, trying to break into the industry or is in the industry, especially in this, you know, post-factual era? Post-factual? Yeah. Girl, that's, no, you don't even need to be in the industry. If you're saying post-factual, where did you get that from? Just like the whole, you know, buzz about fake news. No, and, no, you know, you're trying to get in the industry, you buying into it. No, go somewhere else then. No, we are not fake. We right, are factual. Yeah, you cannot say that. All right, clap. Facts, facts. Right. <laughs> no, I agree with you, but I just wanted to ask because, you know, I just felt like with the president, he has Twitter to amplify his message, and I feel like... It's okay. just unfortunate to see the work of people like you being reduced to well, let me whatever say he this. doesn't there, like. There is a white, I'm not going to out this person, but there's someone who in here who worked for Barack Obama who was very, um, who's a friend, who um, was very keen on what words were mm -hmm. and facts um, and understood that at that time, and I think all the other presidents and the press secretaries understood that there was a fine line between creating your own news and the real news. Mm -hmm. There, there's a, there's something to be said for the independent press. We are not buying into the narrative that you give on Twitter or that you give because it, we have to fact check all the time. 
And there's a reason why Sarah Huckabee Sanders presplains every day. He can say this and then she has come. Well, what he meant was. Right. Yeah. So the facts are there, but it's not on that side. We have to come back. They'll say, oh, it's never been like this ever. No, that's not true. You know, we have to come back and bring the history to it Mm -hmm. and bring facts. And unfortunately, there are people who still don't believe um, what we give. But. If you really look at the sex, if you put the facts on the table, forget party, mm-hmm. forget politics, look at the facts. Mm-hmm. I think people will be pleasantly, well, not pleasantly surprised, but people will be surprised. Facts are there, but mm-hmm. people choose to go the way of what they like or what they think is right versus what is real. But if you're going to get into journalism, don't you ever say the post-fact era. <laughs> don't you? That's, that's, I love you. I'm giving you love. No, but you, because <laughs> we're trying to uphold facts. Right. Yeah. Yes. You, yes, yeah. it's important. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm never going to say post-fact era. We are factual. We're not fake. We're real. Amen. I Amen. Agree. That's yes. right. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank Brad and Lissa and Politics and Prose for supporting me. From the bottom of my heart, I want to thank each and every one of you for supporting me, for coming out tonight. For a time such as this, we need each other. And I thank you for respecting the work that I do and supporting the work that I do. I'm not going anywhere, but I tell you what, when you see them say negative things, throw something at your TV, but don't let it hit the TV. (laughs) And just remember, and just remember, I still have hope in the midst of all of this. We should all have hope. We should have hope. And I still believe we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, we are and have been great and will continue to be great, even though we have keloids, zits and scars. We, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, I still stand on those founding fathers words, freedom of the press. Thank Mm you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.